Hey, welcome to the Film File, the film show for film geeks by Film Geeks. Hey, and we are back. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And welcome to the newest episode, in fact, episode 57 of the Film File. And who can think it? Who would have thought we'd have been here? For 57 episodes, and most of them done over the last year. We are now coming into our, very close to our lockdown year. Yeah, it was uh, it was about the second week of March that we closed the cinema, and we closed just before the lockdown. Because uh, I know that because I had my first week of March off because it was my birthday. Went back to work for one week and then was on lockdown. I was on tour, and there were rumblings then that we wouldn't take the tour any further than, than the UK which uh, they were they were thinking because they were an American company and they were already kind of a little bit miles ahead than we were at that stage uh, looking like it, it wasn't going to happen and then as we as we're getting closer and closer it, it, it started to become it started to become apparent that it wasn't going to happen but wow you know you think about it being a year or so ago and it's uh, it's, it's kind of a little bit crazy that we've been in this situation for that long I remember we'd have been gone. To, we'd have been to see onward about this time. If I remember, yeah, we'll be far off it round about now. Yeah, and uh, my partner's birthday is next month, and I think we uh, we went out for a birthday, and that's literally the last time we went out because I think the weekend after, which was Mother's Day, is when it, when, it, when everything went into uh, into the big L, as it's now referred to. But yeah, unbelievable that we've lived with it a year. And, and just things like we were thinking, yeah, well, about this time, they were talking about pushing Bond back. Bond was the first <laughs> one that, that uh, came upon that list. And then, you know, I think everybody thought we'd be out of it by May. Yeah, but here we are. They didn't say what May, though. They didn't say No, no, May. no, they didn't say May of that year. True. <laughs> but I think we'd all had it in our heads. A, a year on and like a year of like not gathering in a room to do this round a table, doing it online. And now, for the first time in that year, we're actually seeing each other face-to-face, thanks to uh, we're recording this on video. Now, it might not all go out on video, but we will take some select chunks so that you can see what we look like on the YouTube channel and maybe yeah. through Instagram. <laughs> I'm glad I shaved, especially. I did add the, add the special six-week anniversary <laughs> shave, so uh, I'm glad we did that. But, yeah, it's good to see you. It's actually, you know, this is, uh, we tried to do it over video very early on, uh, and it didn't prove to work yeah but um zencaster who we use and big shout out to zencaster because their software has got us through quite a difficult year and it's been quite handy yeah. i love the system i can't recommend it enough and they've been trialing this video recording for a while but we've never we, we've said like we should give it a try we should give it a try but we kept putting it off and now it's basically here and we have to use it so it's like well here we go yeah <laughs> and so far so good so I'm liking far, it. so good yeah so shout out to Zencaster if you've got a podcast out there and you're wondering how you can remotely record in an ec- excellent way with individual audio tracks and individual video tracks Zencaster because you can record just items. the two. No, we're, if, if they did want to pay us, then we would uh, gladly accept any donation. If you want to sponsor the show, Zencaster, we, we're your guys. But uh, yeah, so here we are. Um, actually, Andy and I are looking at each other since uh, I think last time we went to see a movie back in, ooh, uh, maybe October. October, it'll be. 
has yeah. been shut down just after that. So um, uh, this week's show, well, we've got an action-packed show for you, as well as uh, the news, which Andy will have been trawling the World Wide Web for. We're going to be talking about our deep dive, which is Terminator. Yes, James Cameron's Terminator. We're going to be reviewing News of the World. What else, Andy? We've also got the map of tiny perfect things, which landed on Amazon this past week. I've not seen that. And we have how to lame your dragon. I mean, how to. Dra- I mean, Dragon Rider on Sky. Okay, and I'm, later. <laughs> and I'm going to be giving you my thoughts on Greenland, and of course, we'll be looking back over last week's One Division. I've deliberately not asked you what your thoughts on Greenland are because I want to be surprised because if you suddenly turn around and say that you hated it, this is going to be a proper <laughs> reversal of roles. <laughs> yeah, let me just hang on. Just hang on there. Right. So before we start, Andy's been scouring the world wide web to bring you the latest news, change of dates in this segment we gladly call the news. So let's start the news this week talking about uh, someone who we have a lot of love for and we have through the years, but it's starting to get hard to separate the art from the artist, and that's Joss Whedon. Yes. Now, um, saw this one. Um, the same thoughts came to me separating the art from the artist. And, and I pondered this because there's clearly there's been actors and there have been musicians that I admire, and they've been caught up with some kind of past scandal of varying degrees. And I thought about it enough to be able to come to the conclusion that Art and the artists, you can separate because it doesn't mean that you can stop loving their work. You don't. You can stop loving the person, but their work exists because of of who they are. I know, but I, I think you can separate the work and and the artist, and I and I choose to do so. And I think the important aspect is that you, when separating the art from the artist, you have to realise that a whole load of people took part in the manufacture and making of all these films and shows that Joss Whedon was behind. So it isn't just a Joss Whedon thing. So don't let the latest news spoil your enjoyment of things like Buffy, Angel, Firefly, Dollhouse, whatever. Even the Avengers and uh, the Avengers sequel, you know, they were a big part of of Whedon's career. I mean, it's only really sort of, it's only really kind of been damaged after Justice League, hasn't it? Yes. So this has all come kind of off the back of the Ray Fisher complaints against Joss Whedon and his abuse that he gave on set. And Charisma Carpenter has now come out and revealed the details of her own personal issues that she had with Joss Whedon. Now, these are nothing new. We just never knew the details because when they were on Angel, she was quite suddenly removed from the show. And it was a big thing in the like the science fiction press and the fantasy press at the time. It's like, what's behind this? And some digging went on for back in the days when journalists actually, you know, investigated the work. Yeah. um, And all that they could get was that there was some disagreement because Charisma Carpenter was pregnant and it caused complications in the manufacture of the show. Joss Whedon wasn't happy with it. They had an argument and she was kicked. Now she's gone on record to say that it, it went, it was that, but in a huge two page statement, which is well worth checking out. And it's quite upsetting to read he basically singled her out and would bully and abuse her not just over angel but apparently this went back to the buffy days that she felt that she was getting victimized quite a lot and he when she got pregnant he started calling her fat on set 
he basically suggested that she should think about having an abortion. And yeah, he, he used to, as some people have described, he used to take pleasure in upsetting certain people in the cast and crew. He used to see it as a fun thing to do in that kind of, you know, haha, I'm only joking. Oh, don't cry. Don't cry kind of way. Now, after she released her statement, uh, obviously a few of the other members of the cast have come out with their own thoughts. So Amber Benson, who again, it was already known that she had some problems uh, uh, with Joss Whedon back in the day. And she's spoken out about the toxic environment that existed throughout the Buffy years. And that came from the top. So it wasn't just Whedon. It was like pretty much the whole environment there to her was toxic. And Michelle Trackenberg, who who played Dawn, uh, she's not said what he actually did, but she said that he did things that were not appropriate around her for her age. Now, this could be anything. He could have been swearing his mouth off. He could have been he could have been reprimanding people. He could have been crude. He could have done smutty jokes, innuendos. We don't know. So we don't know the details of that one. She's not going into detail. She just says that she was a teenager. What he was acting like was not appropriate for him to do in a workplace. The rest of the cast and crew who've spoken out, and there's quite a few spoken out, have more or less said that they were not aware of it. They never witnessed any of it, but they're quite upset that they couldn't be there at the time to help Charisma Carpenter, and they've offered support to her. Now, Online people have decided to say that as soon as someone says that they support Chris McCarpenter, then obviously they suffered abuse as well. But it's important to say that a lot of the cast and crew, Anthony Stewart Head, for example, have said that they had a great working environment with Joss. They never had an issue with him. However, they don't say that Charisma's wrong. And so they support her because it's opening their eyes now to how he could play favourites. And that's what it looks like. He looks like a boss who played favourites. If he got on with you, he was your best mate. We've heard it in the past from Alan Tudyk. We've quoted Alan Tudyk before now on the show, who gets on so well with him and finds it hard to believe that Josh is like this. But we've all known that boss through our lives. We've all worked for someone through our lives who you know that how they are with you is completely different to how they are with other people. And whether we've been on the receiving end of the abuse, I've, I've had it in my McDonald's days. I had a manager who everyone loved, who talked to me like a piece of dirt. And I find it easy to believe that Joss Whedon could possibly have been like that, that if he didn't like you, he then was that kind of boss that would use that against you constantly. And he'd use it to curry favor. Had, the ones that I'm with. I had the same. And, uh, I worked for a production company. It was a great, great place to work. Had a change of bosses and it made my life miserable. And I'd never been that person to ever felt in my life that I'd been bullied. And so I could totally understand it. It doesn't take away the fact that the work that I produced there was some of the best work I've ever, ever, I've ever done. And I can still look back on the work um, and still say there, there were some good times, even though probably the last few months were, were some of the most miserable times I've, I've ever had. I've worked for a few people in, in my industry, in, in film and TV, who are that, that personality. I don't think it's unusual yeah. in this particular realm to have people who can be egomaniacs or, or uh, ridiculously authoritarian. I think it's an, an, an industry that breeds that. You know, the, any ideas that yeah. the industry is, you know, it's this cool, calm, collective place is... is is deluded really it's it's not it's it's a it's a hard industry um and the people who do well are the people who are strong personalities 
or are incredibly talented yeah. with strong personalities. This is not, I'm not at any point saying that Joss Whedon is, uh, it shouldn't be uh, reprimanded for what he's done. And it sounds like, the, like he has and, and how that will continue, only time will tell. And it is very disappointing as a fan of his work. As I said, I can, I can split the work because, you know, it's more than just Joss Whedon's writing that I like. It's usually the the whole the whole kit and caboodle. You know, what I like about Avengers is not just Joss Whedon's writing and direction. It's it's the actors and the interplay, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's the whole deal. Same with Firefly, even though it's it's singularly his voice on it. That I will, I won't stop. I won't stop liking his work, whether I will like the person. I've never met him. I don't know what he's like. I don't know what he'd be like with me. I've never worked for him. I don't know what he'd be like. Yeah. I'm only going on the knowledge of people who had had their encounters, and it sounds like different encounters. But it's an industry where people, you know, this. I've been on sets where people have gone, "What's the director like on this?" And they'll say, "Oh, he's a screamer." I've had arguments with. There was a show that I was producing. And the director of the of the series was was an imbecile, and he and I clashed every on on every shoot. I thought that he was bullying his crew, and and we clashed constantly. And um, it's it is that kind of an industry, and you know, make no bones about it. For all the happy Hollywood smiley faces that you see, it's a pretty brutal industry, and I've I've seen the best and the worst of it in my limited capacity. So I'm I'm not surprised, but and those people do well because forceful personalities do do well in that kind of an industry, and they have to to a degree. Uh, you say about um, you know when you were in that kind of situation, you're still proud of the work that you did there, and you see this with the cast and crew who have commented so far. So Michelle Geller says that she'd always be proud of being in Buffy, but she doesn't always want to be associated with Joss Whedon. Fair yeah. enough, she's happy to be associated with the product, but the person behind it. Not so much. And, and Charisma Carpenter herself and Amber Benson are well known in the convention circuits. Uh, they pop up quite frequently. They love engaging with the fans. They're proud of the characters that they portrayed. So despite all these problems that, that they had while making it, they still want you to enjoy the product. So don't let this cancel culture make you throw and burn all your Buffy DVDs and Blu-rays and, you know, still love the product. Just re remember that some people, some people who are making it, maybe, you know, they were treated the wrong way. And hopefully that will get brought to task. Now, I need to go on to a soapbox moment spinning off from this. I'm ready. Because soapbox at the ready. <laughs> this whole story breaking resulted in the fans lashing out at co-stars and people from everything Whedon has worked on since, demanding that they say something. Yes, the fandom are bullying people for not sharing their experiences in a public forum. David Boreanaz was continuously ha harassed last week about his silence over the whole thing. And when he finally spoke up to say that he never actually encountered that kind of experience himself, but he fully supports Carpenter, the fans were ready to lambast his delay in speaking out to say that he was obviously complicit because he didn't encounter it, so he must have been part of it. Until Carpenter herself posted in reply to thank him for the support that he's done publicly and in private. And that's the thing. These people are still supporting Charisma Carpenter in private because they know each other. They get on with each other. They've known each other for years. They don't need you to be involved in that conversation. Stop thinking that as a fan, you must be part, part and parcel of every conversation that goes on between celebrities behind closed doors. 
They don't need to make it public. They're supporting them. And stop being bullies yourselves and stop harassing people. That's the most annoying thing about toxic fandom at the moment is that the fans think that they deserve some kind of information. And you don't. I think you're absolutely spot on, Andy. Yeah, you don't need to get Seth Green involved because he was on a few episodes. You don't need to go and talk to all the members of the Avengers cast. We don't need to know what their experiences are unless they want to share them. So that's my soapbox moment for this week. I know that each week we tend to be having a soapbox moment, but, you know, this week it is the toxic fandoms. No, well said, Andy. And I I stand by what you say 100%. Which on the subject of toxic fandom. So the first full trailer of Zack Snyder's Justice League came out. And I'm still staying positive about Zack. (laughs) <laughs> Zach's my buddy this year. Let's, let's, let's be honest. Zach, Zach is my buddy. Okay, so I've got some positive news about Zach. Uh, yeah, have you seen the trailer? I thought it was okay. I wasn't overawed by it. Um, clearly, the uh, internet broke due to the inclusion of the Joker at the end <laughs> and, and the uh, kind of delivery of that line uh, has sent the Twitter sphere spinning. Uh, yeah, it looks good. I mean, I'm. I will see the film and I will make a judgment. I cannot make a judgment because it's it's tainted by what I've seen previously and there's nothing there yet yeah. to make me feel as though... I, I do think it will be better a better film than the film that we got. I, I think it, it has a much more... Well, it's not hard, is it? <laughs> a huge more cinematic scale than than what we got. and And I think it's... You know, I'm I'm happy that Snyder's got to finish his vision, but I, my fingers were burnt with Man of Steel and more so with uh, Batman v Superman. So I'll wait. I think he's a great visualist. I think the man knows how to get the best of a shot. So should he comes through? Uh, he's come from a commercials background. It's his narrative that yeah. always concerns me. Even the best parts of a Watchmen for me, are not particularly the storytelling elements or the visual elements of it. So we'll just have to wait and see. But I know he's going to look great. As you know from when we were talking previously about the Justice League and we talked about the still images that got released, I've been waiting for this kind of trailer to showcase some of the things that he's revealed the stills of, like the new costume designs for uh, Steppenwolf and things like that. I wanted to see them in action because they didn't convince me. And to be honest, you know what? It looks okay. I kind of get the visual stylings that he's going for this time. And it looks more of what I was kind of expecting after Batman versus Superman overall. I'm interested. I'm intrigued. I'm probably not going to enjoy the end product, but I'm like you say, it looks a far better film than the version that we got a few years ago. So let's hold that. But at the same time, Snyder has revealed something which has made me a bit excited. Okay. I mean, this is getting reported as though he's actually directing it now and is going into production. But he's been thinking up a possible idea for a King Arthur film. Yeah, I saw this. I mean, it is just a, an idea formulating in his head. His comments have been taken and spun to make it, make it out as though it's already been picked up for production. It's not. But he wants to do something which he considers an authentic take. Now, what he thinks is authentic on something which is a myth anyway, and has about 14 different possible starting points as where the myth came from. We don't know. However, what interested me the most about him deciding that he he wants to try to do a King Arthur film is that he's been previously talking in interviews in the past of his inspiration for getting into film. And one film that inspired him was Borman's Excalibur. Well, if you're going to go back and (laughs) be inspired by a King Arthur film, you you are going to go for Borman, clearly, rather than, say, the one that happened a few years ago. Yeah. 
And that's the bit that makes me go, well, you know what? If Zack Snyder was inspired by Borman's Excalibur and wants to make an authentic, as he thinks of it, King Arthur film, will his have influences of Borman? And you can kind of see the influences of Borman within Zack Snyder's work, the dark, broody atmosphere, even when it's supposed to be light and, you know, glorious battles, it's dark and brooding. And it, it, it whets my appetite. And this is the thing that I always say about Zack Snyder is that I don't hate Zack Snyder. I don't, I just dislike his DC product and I dislike the fandom around him. I've always been a fan of Zack Snyder, the creator. I've always liked his, like his visual approach. I just, like you say, he can't quite tackle the story elements. He can't quite nail it down, but I still want to see what he's going to deliver. And, you know, we've got his zombie things to come up. Then hopefully he'll get to flesh out this King Arthur project, whether it's a TV series or a film. Who knows? We shall wait and see. Talking yeah. of that, I'm looking forward to to seeing a trailer for Army of the Dead. That must be must be pretty well due. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure that Army of the Dead was originally supposed to have been out by now, but I think the the side diversion project for HBO of getting Justice League all wrapped up clearly has uh, stopped anything moving forward on there. All that we've had is the shots. We've had the still shots. I imagine that we'll get a trailer drop just after Justice League comes out. Right. So I've got a, um, a bit of news for you that you inspired me about, which is there seems to be a new Three Musketeers movie on the go. And all I know so far, it's got Eva Green, Vincent Castle and Oliver Jackson Cohen connected to it. Do you know any more? Yeah, I mean, it's been at least a decade since the last adaptation of The Three Musketeers, and I'm not including the BBC TV series, because that only makes it about five years. Uh, so, of course, there's another... Oh, and it's, that was the last one, I remember. <laughs> and it's and it's not just one film, it's two films getting filmed back-to-back. You're going to be a telling mix- me that they're going to do a Three Musketeers film back-to-back with another Musketeers film? How, how can such a thing happen? Oh, it already did, didn't it? The Sulkins did it. Yeah, 1972 and 1973. <laughs> uh, with the, um, I mean, the ones that I grew up with, the ones that made me love the Three Musketeers, those 70s versions were the Richard an absolute Lester joy. Yeah. And I've always loved the Three Musketeers as a result, either through stories or through films, TV series. And I know that a lot of people don't, but the Anderson film, I've got a lot of love for. But So I'm excited about a new take being done and the cast is going to be a mix of major talent and rising stars like you say um eva green is going to be in there as milady de winter uh francois civil as d'artagnan and athos is going to be played by vincent cassell who always shines on screen a uh, porthos yes. by p.o marmai and aramis by roman doris um, vicky creeps from phantom thread and louis garrell are the queen and king oliver jackson cohen is playing buckingham and Lina Codry is playing Constance. And the role of Richelieu hasn't been announced yet, but everyone is salivating at the prospect of anyone being cast in there because Richelieu is the that's the role that everyone wants to play. It's the it's the <laughs> ultimate villain character in these tales. Uh, Martin Borblon is going to helm both the films back to back this summer. And it's going to introduce a new character to the mix uh, called Hannibal which is actually based on the true story of Louis Aniaba, the very first black uh, musketeer. So mm-hmm. people people obviously say, oh, look, they're just going to inclusion things. But no, they're doing this for a reason because it is to pay reference 
to a forgotten character from that time. So I'm excited. I, I want to see what this comes out like. And I'm more than happy for it to be two films because like you said, and like I agreed, we've already had it before when Richard Lester did two films back to back, The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers. And if you've never seen them, oh, just go and do yourself a favour and put that double bill on. An absolute joy, both of them. Absolutely. So we've not spoken about Scorsese and his upsetting people in the film community. Yes, well, when if you've only just joined us and you uh, don't remember the outcry Scorsese started, I mean, the world was in flames. Not only a pandemic, but apparently Scorsese didn't like superhero movies. Is it so? and be damned. <laughs> well, he's, he's done a long piece for Harper's in which he reflects on the rise of the word content and how the art form of cinema is fading away. And I might as well quote him because we do like to quote Scorsese. As recently as 15 years ago, the term content was heard only when people were discussing the cinema on a serious level, and it was contrasted with and measured against form. Then, gradually, it was used more and more by the people who took over the media companies, most of whom knew nothing about the history of the art form or even cared enough to think that they should. Content became a business term for all moving images. A David Lean movie, a cat video, a Super Bowl commercial, a superhero sequel, a series episode. It was linked, of course, not to the theatrical experience, but to home viewing on the streaming platforms that have come to overtake the movie-going experience, just as Amazon overtook physical stores. On the one hand, this has been good for filmmakers, myself included. On the other hand, it has created a situation in which everything is presented to the viewer on a level playing field, which sounds democratic, but it isn't. If further viewing is suggested by algorithms based on what you've already seen, and the suggestions are based only on subject matter or genre, then what does that do to the art of cinema? And the, the full piece can be found if you do a search for it online. Just do a search for Scorsese, comments, Harper's. And it's a fascinating read, the whole thing. And it, it is that whole, like, he's been in this industry for so long. and He's got some interesting insights. Whether you agree with him fully or not is beside the point. But you've got to appreciate everything that he's saying. And I think he makes a valid point that if you're just relying on Netflix's algorithm to tell you what to watch, then you're not going to broaden your horizons of film watching. And that's what he's trying to say here. The problem with the new system of streaming is that it doesn't allow for curating, because he went on to also talk about how services such as Mubi and the Criterion Channel curate films. They don't, don't just have everything out there. They select films for particular reasons. And so if you subscribe to them, you will open your eyes up to a diverse range of different measures of the art form. And he adds that curating isn't undemocratic or elitist, which is a term that gets used far too often. And I, I kind of agree. But at the same time, part of me bugs me about it because he's basically putting the blame on the algorithms when we can curate for ourselves before we absolutely had i was about to say exactly that andy that was my next line out of my mouth is we are responsible for the content that we like you know i it's, it's quite interesting and just just to illustrate that uh, i have a setting on netflix my partner has a setting on netflix and when stuff comes up on on hers that the recommended viewing I kind of sometimes wonder, well, why didn't I get that? Because that's something I, I didn't know was out there. And But I, I'll take the time to trawl and see what's new, and I, and I will go. I mean, I think my algorithms are completely all over the place anyway, but um, 
I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, it's uh, cinema is a broad church, and there is something in there for everybody. Uh, but it's always worth uh, having a pee in the pulpit because otherwise, you don't know what that experience is going to be. You don't know <laughs> what you're going to find. I mean, go back just fifty years, and the only films that you could see were either curated by the BBC when they showed them on a Saturday afternoon, or what was showing in the two screens at your local flea pit cinema. So people are in no different situation curating wise than what they were back then, that you had to seek out projects. You had to seek out art form. You had to know what you wanted to watch in advance. The problem is not what the content is doing or what the services are doing. The con- the problem is in audiences. And I don't think you'll ever change audiences. No. The, even in the days of blockbuster home rental, People would go in and just look at the what's the top 20, what's new this week, and we'll get that, and would really go to the back of the shop into that library of random things that come from nowhere and delve in and pick something. Or if they did, they'd go, oh, it's black and white. Oh, I'm not bothering that. Oh, it was made in the 70s. We've always had the opportunity, haven't we? We've always known by the fact that we are are geeks that we will find out, we'll hear something. Or we'll read, I remember we'll reading something in Starlog, which was my my internet of the time, to saying, oh, I, I'd like to find that. And you know what? It might have taken 30 years for it to find, to find it somewhere on a streaming service because it never made it over to this country. And, and yeah. it's always out there. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you, I think. Uh, what he's saying is true, but I think we've always, we've always kind of curated. It's just disappointing when... Because of the algorithms, we aren't sort of signposted to things where we, we might be of interest. It might be a cool Korean movie, or it might be a cool... Yeah. You, uh, have, you have uh, to look for it. You have you've to do it. You've got to search. In a way, because of the advent of social media, we are joining communities that help us curate. I mean, look at the movie talk on Sunday that I run each week, and shameless plug for my own movie talk on Sunday there. You but, should. It's your show. Whilst talking about that, and we go through various topics, there's very often someone will mention a film that I've never heard of or completely forgotten about, and I will then seek it out. And that we will use that to curate each other's recommendations. And there's a few who just tag along for the movie talk to take notes of what to watch the, over the following week. And that's what the social media aspect can really help with the curating of things. Some people have suggested that uh, maybe Netflix and Amazon should get a professional critic or a film producer each month to do a curation section. My recommend Scorsese on Netflix. Scorsese recommends, and then the following month have a different director doing it. You know, so th- there's ways for this to grow. But it's a great little piece. Find the whole piece, read through the whole thing. Because even if you don't like to say, even if you don't agree with everything that he says, you really respect everything that he says because he's been working in this industry for quite some time. And talking of industry. Um... Mission Impossible. Now, what we did know was that Mission Impossible 7 uh, was being shot back to back with Mission Impossible 8 under the direction of Chris McCurry again. Apparently, that's not the grand plan anymore. Yes, uh, due to I think there's, there's some pandemic that has been going on that has slowed down productions on things and delayed stuff and caused complications. Uh, because of various pandemic delays, the plan to go straight from the end of production on seven straight into eight has had to a change, but only slightly. Uh, the seventh film is almost wrapped now. It's only got a few more pieces to shoot back in the UK before it then goes into post-production. And Cruise at that point is going to step away, go into self-isolation in a different way so we can start the promotional tour for Top Gun Maverick. Remember that film? 
Remember, I, remember that? Do, that was yeah. <laughs> back in, well, back that, in the heyday of, of being able to think about scheduling. Well, that film opens in June, allegedly. Um, once all media commitments are done on that and he's done all the tour promotion for that, then he will go back, quarantine again, and back into pre-production for Mission Impossible 8. So it's taking that short break to promote a film that he's contractually committed to because he's the lead star of. So it's all because the pandemic delays has interrupted shooting schedules, marketing schedules, etc. So like you said, it's going to be a short, maybe one or two month break and then straight back in. Uh, Mission Impossible 7 is still due out for this November, allegedly. And the eighth film is eyeing up next November, allegedly. And I'm going to say allegedly after every date that are dropped from now on with to do with films because I'm fed yeah, up with changing. Can't say. <laughs> I hear there's some casting news out there. There's quite a lot of casting going on. There certainly seems to be. You'd think it was an industry in which films are being made, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll go first. Um, because I, I love both actors. Uh, Donald Glover and Phoebe Waller-Bridger are to play Mr. and Mrs. Smith in a TV adaptation. You remember that the movie starred Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. There was a TV uh, offshoot of it back in the day when you used to get that a lot. You used to get a, a big movie and there was a TV offshoot. We talked about that way, way back when. But apparently in this new TV adaptation, it's Donald Glover and Phoebe Waller-Bridger, who I think are just two fantastic actors. And that's made me more than anything else show interest in this if it hadn't been for this casting i would have just said yeah it might be interesting but that makes it interesting donald glover has a an endless charm to him that just sizzles on screen and he cropped up in um that bad star wars film that i have no time for but he was actually good in it i'm happy to see him pop up in anything so i'm, I'm excited about it i really enjoyed mr and mrs smith when it came out i yeah, latched onto it straight away and i think i think it could be a charming tv spy caper series looking forward to it uh, jordan peele is developing his next film and there's some names attached to it that we quite like kiki palmer has signed on to star in his new film we don't know a title yet but it's also as you said a fabulous cast including well daniel kaluuya is uh, rejoining him again and he's a marvelous actor i remember when he first came to my attention on the bbc tv show the fades oh uh, right. which yeah, was very short-lived i remember that, Black that show if that got me we were talking about the fades this past couple of days on twitter because uh, we were talking about horror tv and i said that it was disastrously short short-lived and cut short after six episodes and yet if it got shown now it would get a lot more traction because all the names in there the whole cast are all people who've gone on to bigger and better things now and would instantly draw people in but back then they were all unknown but i remember when he was in that and then he went on to move over to America to get involved in films over there. And he was a name that I was looking out for. And then we've also got joining this time. We love him. We've spoke about him a good few times. Jesse Plemons. No longer looks like Matt Damon. <laughs> yeah, he's, a, he's, he's now no longer just a stunt double. <laughs> so, yeah. He's great. Everything, is it? We don't know much about the film. We don't know how it's going to go. We just know that we're interested because the name's involved. Yeah. Captain Marvel has added Zoe Ashton to the cast. Yeah, and she's apparently she's playing the villain, but as of yet, we don't know who the villain is. And I've been trying to work this out. I've never been a big reader of Captain Marvel, so I, I, I don't have a clue really who, which character she could be. I just, I'm not that familiar with the books. I know that they're very well written. I've only read one stretch of it and it was very good, but I, I don't know enough about 
about the villains who sort of saw around that character. So I'm intrigued. Of course, it's Marvel. I'm intrigued. Yeah. Dungeons and Dragons has added member of the cast. We spoke last week about the key cast that were getting added. Roger Jean Page has signed on apparently for Dungeons and Dragons. Now, interestingly, he's been a breakout star of, of the series Bridgerton, which I, I've seen a couple of episodes. It's kind of fun. It's not really my, my uh, bag. I'd also heard rumour that he'd been spotted and talked about for Black Panther, uh, the sequel that starts shooting in June or July of this year. So we'll wait and see. But now that he's on for Dungeons & Dragons, kind of puts an end to, to that rumour. And more casting news for the Borderlands movie that I'm growing more and more disappointed with the choices, as Jack Black is now going to be voicing Claptrap. A Claptrap is the funny and rather um, egocentric robot that introduces the characters in the game and draws you into the main storyline. And Jack Black is not the right personality for him, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so I'm um, I'm just staying away from this film. I'm staying away from speculating on this film now. That's it. <laughs> Until there's a trailer, I'm not going to talk about it. The big casting news for me over the last week was uh, Pedro Pascal and Game of Thrones, Bella Ramsey have been announced as the stars of The Last of Us TV adaptation. And you know how excited I am for that. Craig Mazin is writing it along with Neil Duggenworth, who who created the game. Um, so looking forward to it. Not the names that I would have thought of, but you know what? I didn't know who, who I was thinking of. Uh, Pedro Pascal just seems to be everywhere at the moment. Yeah. Apparently because of um, his work in Mandalorian, it kind of figures that he's got space to do um, do that series because uh, a lot of Mandalorian is, is shot with a stunt double, so it's kind of going to work out. Yeah, spinning off from Star Wars with Mandalorian. And remember when Ryan Johnson had his uh, three film plans that suddenly went quiet and haven't been mentioned at all for the past year and a half? Yeah, so there was the couple of announcements of what was going to happen next on Star Wars, but, but carry on. Yeah, uh, it was completely not mentioned in the Disney presentation last year, and so everyone just basically assumed, oh, well, that's dead and buried then. Well, Johnson has confirmed that it's still very much alive and it's still very much a thing, although there's no dates and timelines for production at this point in time because uh, COVID. Yeah. But he is still working out the ideas for the trilogy that he's got set up, and it's got to be a trilogy that is planned from the start. Not like uh, this, we'll do one film and then see what we can do with the next film with a different director and then move on to a completely different thing for the next one. It's going to feel like a complete story. I'm excited. Love Ryan Johnson. Glad to, glad to know that the film's still going ahead. And talking of films uh, currently in pre-production, Will Eubank and Christopher Landon are working on a reboot of Paranormal Activity. Why? I don't know. And Adam Wingard, who is coming off the back of King Kong versus Godzilla, is directing a face-off follow-up. Who would have even thought that face-off needed a follow-up? But apparently it does. Yeah, it's a bizarre one, the face-off one, because when it got announced, everyone was like, oh, is it going to be a reboot? And that's like, no, it's a sequel. Oh, right, so it's going to be set years later. No, it's a direct sequel. They're just recasting. So it's going to be set pretty much just after that. And I've seen face-off, and I can't work out how they're going to have both the characters come back. Yeah, uh, especially now, and especially why. Let's just hope that, Halloween Kills does come out this October as they are planning. We know that it was originally supposed to come out last October. It got put back to this October. And Carpenter, he's readying himself for it to go straight to streaming. Apparently, Jason Bloom is adamant that it's definitely coming out this no matter what this October. So Carpenter has said in an interview that the discussions have been made behind the scenes, that it might go to a streaming service. How does he feel about it? And it's not ideal for him, but he understands it and he'll accept it. 
and they've deliberately put off the production of the next Halloween film in the hope that things get better so that they can definitely go back to the cinema if they have to go to streaming this time. Right. So hopefully we'll get to see it anyway. Hopefully this October, if Jason Blum has his way, it's definitely coming out one way or the other on streaming or at the cinema. So let's round off with yet more cancellation culture. And this yeah. time it's all about Gina Carano. Now you've got to have been hiding under a, a, a geek rock not to have noticed this one. It blew up last week when uh, it was, Disney announced basically that she'd been fired from uh, The Mandalorian. And that has seemed to be just the beginning. And all sorts of things have made uh, Twitter set on fire. And uh, I know that's nothing to go by because Twitter can set on fire literally by a misspelling. So uh, what have you got from this? This isn't just something that's come out of the blue. And this has been apparently on the sidelines for a while. But her most recent posts online confirmed that Disney were going to let her go. They were already considering this. Her contract was due for renewal, but hadn't been signed on. Because last year, she was posting COVID conspiracies, anti-vax statements, um, and various very right-wing viewpoint messages that are quite toxic and poisonous in support of a very toxic and poisonous orange clown who was in charge of that country for four years. <laughs> nicely nicely she, walked around that one, so nicely walked around. Apparently she was uh, warned back then about the statements that she was making, not reflecting Disney as a company, and she needs to be careful because she represents the brand in everything that she does because when you're a celebrity, that's what you are. You are the brand, which is why she was not involved in any of the promotion around Mandalorian Season 2, despite having a more significant role in Season 2 than what she had in Season 1. She obviously didn't learn a lesson because over the past month, she sent out some abhorrent posts online comparing how conservatives since Trump has been kicked out are being treated like the jews during the holocaust ouch yeah and the irony of the fact that she seems to think that the most right-wing organizations are the jews in this argument is uh, not lost on anyone but she also threw out homophobic slurs and utter utter disgrace i'm not going to repeat them here because there's some disgraceful opinions that she was conveying that she took down because she was warned, but then she doubled down and backed up her ideas and says, I shouldn't be shut down. And so Disney, who was still waiting to go, do we sign her up for another season? Went, nope, get out. So she wasn't exactly sacked. She just wasn't rehired for the, like, their contract wasn't renewed. Now, she's then gone on to, um, and whoa, I'm sure that you're looking forward to her next project now. She's lined up to work on a project for the Daily Wire, the far-right conservative website, and she's going to be working with right-wing bigot Ben Shapiro. Okay. She would be developing, producing, and starring in a film that will exclusively go out to the Daily Wire subscribers. So basically, it's going to be a very right-wing propaganda movie that she's going to be making, which will go out to the right-wing propaganda people and no one else. So I'm fine with that because that means that the rest of us don't have to suffer it. <laughs> In her words, I'm sending out a direct message of hope to everyone living in fear of cancellation by the totalitarian mob. I've only just begun using my voice, which is now freer than ever before, and I hope it inspires others to do the same. They can't cancel us if we don't let them. She's only just begun using her voice, which is now freer than ever before. Why is that? Because for the past four years, the right wing have been given power. They've been given the blessing by the leader of a country to give out their bigoted views wherever they like. She's bought into it. She's completely gone with it. You know what? People are saying recast her character. 
don't. You don't need her character. To be honest, after the last episode, the character was sort of fulfilled everything it needed to do, uh, and there's no point in going back to it. And and just on, on just I know you're in mid rant, but just on the back <laughs> end of that, there's never there's never been more avenues uh, due to cable TV news in in the states to have right wing leaning thoughts due to the cable situation in the states. You've got Fox News, you've got all these these others that have sprung up, which are very very right wing. There's having your contract ended and cancel culture and and i'm sorry i that, i'm not happy and i'm not comfortable with this term cancel culture because no one ever gets cancelled I'm, I'm afraid i'm sorry you might you might be out of favor but you there are enough areas now uh where you can express your simplistic and and idiotic thoughts uh, and, and there are those people who will uh, uh applaud them you work for a a family organization or family you know, makes family based films you know um yeah. you, you know you don't do this with in any other job and expect to get away with it so um I'm, you know yeah i'm sorry i'm done i mean i'm not going to miss her from mandalorian as i think uh, her role was kind of over anyway did the it did what it was there to do it's a shame it's a shame you know what else is over what's that the news if you've enjoyed the show so far, and there's really no reason why you shouldn't be, come on, it's action-packed, it's full of geek news, and it's free, then please hit the subscribe <laughs> button, because why not? Also, leave a review, because we want to read your thoughts about what we're doing, because we want to be told nice things. Because, come on, it's post-Valentine's Day, and where was your card? I didn't get one. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so at... Over on Twitter, at FilmFileUK. You can also catch us on Instagram, FilmFileUK. Or you can email us, podcast at FilmFile.UK. Tell Come us on. anything. Tell us your favourite film. Tell us a film that you think we should watch or cover in detail. We're open for your suggestions. We're open 24 hours a day, so contact us anytime. No, seriously, get in touch. We just love to hear your thoughts. So if you are a regular to this show, and hi, good to see you again, then you know uh, this portion of the program, we do a deep dive. In fact, we don't just do a deep dive. We go undercover, mask and everything, to talk about films from our past that we've liked, sometimes films we've not even liked. But we'll talk about them because those are the kind of guys we are. This week, we are looking at the 1984 American science fiction film that brought director James Cameron to the forefront of being probably the world's biggest action director. It starred Arnold Schwarzenegger and Linda Hamilton, and of course that film is The Terminator. They come from another time. A machine wrapped in flesh. A soldier from a distant war. Both after a woman who holds the key to the future. One wants to kill her. The other must protect her. I'm here to help you. You've been targeted for termination. The Terminator. Your future is in his hands. The Terminator. Rated R. So, set in 1984 Los Angeles, a cyborg assassin known as a Terminator arrives back from the year 2029, where mankind is on the brink of extinction. The Terminator's plan is to come back in time and kill a woman called Sarah Connor, whose son will lead the resistance against the Terminators. It starred a very young Arnold Schwarzenegger, who at that point wasn't the big star that he turned out to be. It launched the career of James Cameron, and it's still a film that set the standard for science fiction films as we know them today, because 
It was bold. It was interesting. It was non-stop. And it was a film that was done on a particularly low budget. Around $6 million? Around $6 million. It wasn't a, this wasn't a big movie. You've watched it recently, and as it held up? Yes. It's, I mean, I, I go back and re-watch this. This is one of my, every year, I will watch The Terminator. I absolutely love the first two films. And I, the first film in particular, I think, is the better of the two films. The Terminator 2, don't get me wrong, it's polished. It looks great. The effects are a lot better. But this first one is dark, it's gritty, it's dirty, and it works because of it. This time that I rewatched it, I was sat with my daughter, who's never experienced any of the Terminator brand. She's never not watched any of those more recent films. She's not watched any of them. But she was sat in the room where I put on the first film, and she sat and watched it. So we watched Terminator 2 as well today. And seeing her reacting to it, and does it stand up? Well, to me, the effects still stand up. The stop motion, I, I'm still captivated by the design of the Terminator still looks great. The modeled shots of the future war still look great. But her perspective was completely different. That's not completely different. She got that it's data technology, but she thought that it looked like, particularly the stop motion, looked a bit silly. It didn't quite work for her because, yes, it still stands up through my nostalgic glasses, but for a new audience, I can see why the first film could be a hard sell for them because some of the effects work is still a bit ropey and i think terminator 2 for a new audience is a better kind of introduction to the series uh, right. because yeah, it's that. a lot more polished it's a, it, it's visually more spectacular and it it plays basically the same story but it's it's a film that i appreciate and i love because i remember seeing it when i was young and i remember being wowed by the design work of it the the design of the terminator by the great stan winston was such an iconic design that that basic design hasn't really changed throughout the films, and there's no reason for it to. And the stop-motion effects, like I say, they look a bit ropey to a modern audience, but Gene Warren did a pretty good job with the limited budget that they had to work on this. Yeah, I mean, uh, let's let's go back to those heady days of 1984. Schwarzenegger had only really been seen and, and exploded onto the screen in Conan. Cameron had only directed Piranha 2 The Spawning. And before that was an effects guy for Roger Corman. And apparently the story is that while directing in Rome, Piranha 2, uh, Cameron fell in, fell ill, had a dream about a metallic torso holding kitchen knives, dragging itself from an explosion. He was inspired by director John Carpenter, who had made the slasher film Halloween, to make a low-budget movie and use the dream basically as a launching pad to write this slasher style. Uh, Cameron's agent apparently disliked the early concept of the horror film, requested he work on something else. And after this, Cameron, being the kind of director he is, uh, dismissed his his agent. Uh, and he went around uh, with a couple of other writers and some friends, and he drew inspiration from, of all things, The Outer Limits, which there was kind of a legal complication with the writer Harlan Ellison, I remember, but that's a story for another time. Uh, Mad Max 2, uh, The Driver, which was big in 1978, and he, he got it down to this, well, this strong, streamlined, uh, non-stop action movie. Originally, they wanted to cast uh, either Mel Gibson for the role. Uh, Sylvester Stallone was mentioned. But the role looked as though it was going to land on the desk of Lance Herrickson. Yep, Lance Herrickson, who plays a tiny role as a cop in there and played a bigger role in uh, Aliens, again directed by James Cameron 
was the original choice. And the idea that he was going to be more of an infiltration unit uh, as a cyborg, as opposed to the uh, unstoppable being that he became. Uh, and there was, um, there was some controversy when uh, Schwarzenegger was cast because he, he shouldn't have worked. He's supposed to be this, this uh, infiltration unit, but there's no way you can't spot a guy like Arnold. But yeah. they stuck with it, and that's the beauty of cinema, and that's the beauty of just perfect casting. And I always remember reading that Schwarzenegger played it like a, a shark, and the way that his head turns and the eyes follow was yeah. always uh, was always the, the thing that made this character iconic. Uh, and now you can't imagine... You can't imagine Terminator without Schwarzenegger. Now, whilst I say that the effects work don't necessarily stand up today for a modern audience, the storyline still stands up. And my daughter picked up on all the little touches within the story. She found amusement when it's supposed to be amusing. When, like, the landlord of the flat is like, what, have you got a dead cat in there? And he scrolls through all the different options. She chuckles. She got what was going on. Uh, And she also got the little nod backs in the following film as well. Things like him saying, I'll be back. Again, when he's leaving the lift shaft to go and like get past the cops and find a way for them to get out the building. As soon as he said that, he's like, is he going to drive a car through the building? I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is. But um, I'll let you discover it. But she was also picking up, like asking throughout it. It's like, yeah, on the first film, it's like, um, so what happens if this? What? How could this happen? It's like, well, watch. How can you kill an unkillable machine? Watch, watch. So she was getting caught up in the stories it went along. And then when it came to the second one, now... This is one thing that I was envious of her for, is that Terminator 2, when it came out for us, we already had it advertised to us that Arnie was going to be playing the good guy this time, that there was going to be a more menacing Terminator. It makes that whole initial 30 minutes, which is basically mirroring the first 30 minutes of the original film, kind of pointless because it plays the same way that you think that Arnie is a bad Terminator out to kill. And here's this human looking person trying to also track him down and being nice and like, hey, have you seen this kid? Oh, he's a lovely boy. And, you know, he's genuinely charming. And then it flips at the get down scene. She wasn't aware of that. So as it's building up to that, she's like, how how come this Terminator's not killing everyone? Don't they normally kill everyone? It's like, oh, well, because it's a crowded mall, so it wouldn't want to cause attention to itself. But no, she kind of cottoned on that something wasn't quite right. But it was only when it got to that confrontation in the corridor and he tells John to get down that it twigged with her. And seeing her reaction at that point, it was like, that's what we should have had. That's what we should have had. But the marketing let it down. Marvellous film. I could go back and actually revisit it, number two, because I've uh, all my love has always been for the original, for the first Terminator. And not that I, I dislike in any way Terminator 2, but if I go back and watch one, then the one I'll go back and, and watch is always Terminator. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the first film for me is always the stronger one. It's the same with Alien and Aliens. I love Aliens, but I prefer Alien. And with, with Terminator 1 and 2, Terminator 2 was just a copy of the first film with better effects. And so. The original will always be closer to me, heart completely. I love time travel films. I love the fact that this is a time travel film that creates its own paradox. I love that it leaves me mess- like leaves it messing with my head, and I love that it doesn't try to describe it. It even just says that's tech stuff. It just says disregard it. Yeah, we know that it's complicated. Don't think too much on it. I love the framing of the ending. I love that that photograph that he's been carrying throughout. You get to see where that photograph was taken because it's commented when 
like he says that like he always wondered what she was thinking and she was thinking of him at the time and it's those little touches that show what a creative genius story-wise James Cameron could actually be yeah and yeah. he really set out his stall in this film he set out what he could do with action what he could do with any budget that he's given but also what he can do to make you care about characters in a situation because you do genuinely care about these characters absolutely and you let's not forget i mean we talked a lot about arnie but linda hamilton just sells it all the way through she goes from somebody who's complete innocent um, a damsel in distress one might say to being this hardened uh, woman in the face of the face of her own impending doom and her own impending destiny uh, and and plays it beautifully and michael Bean just steals the entire film for me a fantastic sort of second banana role and he makes it work he brings he brings humility and humanity to somebody who's forgotten to be uh, human at times. And, and there's all those clever little interplays within the script uh, about what it means to be human. And, and, and I don't think Cameron's ever done anything uh, better than this script-wise because the film is just, it's just relentless and it, it works on, on every level. It's visceral, it's action-packed. Just the way that the film never stops, even to give away huge amounts of exposition they do it during a car chase or they do it during um a a, a piece of action the film is 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 consistently consistently running moving forward and 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 it's still fantastic and probably the fact that there is less money behind it than uh, than there is in in his future work but the film did establish both arnie and and cameron as as being one being the, the action director for a generation and the other one just being the, such a huge international star. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's a fantastic, fantastic effort and, and, and holds up so well to today. If you do decide to go back and revisit Terminator, you know, by all means, watch Terminator and by all means, go straight on and watch Terminator 2 afterwards and then just stop. There's not yeah, been any other need. Terminator films. You don't need you don't to move need on the rest. after that. Even, even when Cameron kind of came back on board for Dark Fate and develop the story idea the, the the entire film just ends up being oh it's a retread of everything that we've already seen in the first two terminator films so you only need the first two films and maybe some of the comic books and novel spin-offs that played with the idea a lot better but first terminator film a definite classic absolutely just an aside from that there was uh, an entanglement with harlan ellison the great science fiction writer over two scripts that he'd written for the outer limits one titled soldier uh, and then there was one which is fantastic called Demon with a Glass Hand. Now, to go into it, it's been said that the, uh, they were plagiarized for the film. What, whether that's true or not, there was a, an out-of-court settlement. But if you ever get the chance, try and watch both episodes. And you might see a little bit of influence on it, but certainly Demon with a Glass Hand is one of the best hours of uh, science fiction TV that you will ever get a chance to watch. It is phenomenal. And that's our look at Terminator. Okay, so now, moving on. We can't get into a cinema, but that doesn't mean we can't give you reviews. And boy, have we got some interesting reviews for you this week. Starting with, that appeared on Netflix uh, last week, stars Tom Hanks, and the film is News of the World. See all those words? Put them all together? You have a story. Story. Captain. Why are you doing this? Little girl is lost. I'm returning her to her surviving family. Well, you can certainly handle a horse. 
boss. That's right. Captain. Make no mistake. Captain. Roads closed. Is that the law? It is now. How much you want for her? She's not for sale. The stories on these pages can't get us home. She was dying for! You can't have her! And I'm taking her home! It's hard. Find a new way. News of the world. As Lee said, this is a film starring Tom Hanks and it's directed by Paul Greengrass and it tells the story of Captain Jefferson Kyle Kidd, a veteran of three wars and it's set five years after the end of the American Civil War and he's now moving from town to town as a storyteller, reading out choice selections from newspapers from around the world to the communities that he's visiting, a way to share the news of the world. Whilst going about his news delivery services, he finds himself given the task of returning an orphaned girl named Joanna, who had been raised by Native Americans after they had massacred her original family. He needs to take her to her last remaining family members of her original family, her aunt and uncle. And as they journey from town to town, the language barrier obviously causes obstructions. She can't understand him because she's speaking Native American tongue. He can't understand her, but they grow a bond as they start to explore the Wild West. And this film is a classic Western. This is a this is a film that I I was worried about because Greengrass, for me, seemed like the wrong choice of director for a classic Western. Greengrass, who was known for the Bourne films, he was known for Captain Phillips, United 93. He's very well known for having films with choppy, erratic nature, with an almost documentary style of filming, and um, what's known as shaky, shaky cam, or FTF, which stands for being the frame. And westerns, traditionally, are quite static cameras, or they sweep gently across majestic landscapes. They draw you in, the landscape itself being part of the personality of the film. And I thought, oh no, green grass is going to mess this up. But boy, was I wrong. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think he's brought a, uh, an absolutely stylized, conventional aesthetic to, to the western. And it's a beautiful looking, uh, looking movie. Probably the most beautiful film that he's ever done aesthetically. Yeah, it's picturesque landscape shots the desolate wild captured all in all its stark empty beauty and characters the characters are archetypes of the films that we remember from the 50s 60s which explored the western in all its detail and there's nothing genuinely fresh and original within this film it plays to all the tropes it plays to the stereotypes you get the antagonistic attitudes between the natives and the colonists you get the aftermath of the Civil War. You get the corrupt landowner who's bringing his own corrupt news and doesn't want the real world news being brought out, which I kind of think is a little bit of a stab towards the past four years of a certain president wanting to cancel out all real news and create his own spin on things. But at the heart of it, you get Tom Hanks and this young girl and their chemistry as they start to bond. And that's what really makes this story more than just the generic components from other films that it's slotted in it's their journey their exploration their discovery of each other and their bond as it goes on so i could watch tom hanks bond with a, a kettle and a toaster to be honest with you <laughs> you could have three hour film with him just talking to a kettle and a toaster and i would love it but it really sells it well within this this film absolutely absolutely loved it 
from start yeah, to me finish. Too. Me too. I'm not going to anything you've said. I, I there's no disagreement from him. Of course, they worked together before in Captain Phillips, and and I thought. Uh, Tom Hanks' performance in Captain Phillips was was just stunning, and and probably one of the most had one of the most emotional character moments in a film that I've ever seen that 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 rendered me speechless and and on, on the verge of tears, uh, just from from one just one tiny bit of the performance, not the entire film. Uh, I thought they worked together that well. It, it is a gorgeous looking western. Uh, it's not what we consider to be a Paul Greengrass film from that look. However, in, in fact, what it is a Paul Greengrass film is, is that it, it has, as you mentioned, that, that relevance to today. You know, the, you've, you've got this odd coupling and this journey, which is the, the heart of the film. But it's, it's about America now. Um, and America in the 1870s was a divided country. And, uh, and where the news, it seems through this, helped bring communities together and and I think there's there's a clear nod to to the world that we live in today, and then that's what a Western should do. It should talk about the times that we're living now, even though it's a uh, uh, it's a period piece, and you know this disunited um, United States of America post Civil War, especially the reconstruction that happened with Texas, seems to serve up um, for me um, what's happened over sort of the. Uh, how racism's run run wild over the last few years and, and communities have, have become distrusting of each other and, and it captures that perfectly. The performances are fantastic. The young girl played a young girl called Joanna played by Helena Zengel just does all the acting with her eyes and there's not one point you just don't believe her. But I, I think and I heard this as this is a complaint, which the film was slow. I, I didn't find it slow at all. I found it wonderfully languid the fact that it moved at the pace that it had to move at the fact that it wasn't even the action sequences there are a couple of very tense sequences there were moments where my heart was in their mouth and it, it worked at a pace that was right for this film this is a film about discovery or rediscovery and it needed to work at, at, at that level and it brings it brings a beauty to it uh, and it brings a uh, just a certain. It's a, it's a, it's only a slight narrative, and it really is for the majority of it a two hander. But it, it helps develop towards this huge emotional knockout punch at the end, and and there's even without a shred of sentimentality, Hanks just invests Captain Kidd as a man from his wife for five years due to the war, a man who's processing the world around him and the horrors he's seen in that war. And he just gives it so much dignity and compassion. And when that, that ending kicks in, I just thought, I thought it was a, a beautiful ending to a beautiful film um, about, about two broken people who, who need each other ultimately. And uh, I just think it was a fantastic film and, and absolutely loved every, every minute of it. And uh, it's a film that stayed with me for um, a good, good couple of days after watching it. And uh, um can't recommend it highly enough this is the kind of film that i mean despite the fact that westerns typically underperform at the box office these days it's a genre that people have turned away from from in recent eras but i feel that this could have done something at the box office and this is the one of the ones that makes me makes me really sorry that we aren't open for business at this point in time because this would have played beautifully on the screen i think it would have been amazing visually 
to watch on the screen. I could have invested even more in it. But I'm glad it found a home on the streaming services where it's found a wider audience. Yeah. And this is the irony, is that this film belongs on the big screen, but it's found an audience. And you see it all over the internet. Loads of people are tuning into this. Tom Hanks' name has obviously drawn a lot of people towards it. And whether people have enjoyed it or not, it's got that audience in that maybe Westerns just need something like this to get back into the public conscience. I thoroughly long for the day when this style of film succeeds on the big screen again. Yeah. This is a proper yeah. nod back to the classic Westerns and I recommend it to everyone. I absolutely adored this film. I can't wait to watch it again. I think it's a film that deserves watching again. Now, Andy recommended this film highly last week based on my recommendation of the trailer. So I had to get round eventually to watching Greenland. So if you want to know what Andy said about it, go back and uh, and listen to last week's podcast. Um, but here's my take on it. And, and now Andy's nervous because I recommended this <laughs> film. Because I, I said to him, I think the trailer looks kind of good. And you went, meh. Uh, and then you, you love the film. So directed by Roman Wah, who worked with Jared Butler before in Angel Has Fallen, I think it was. And it's a film about a giant comet that's going to skim past the Earth. Uh, but in fact gets dreadfully close and leads to uh, an annihilation event. My heart was in my mouth for the majority of this film because of the absolute plausible and absolute horrifying turn of events that felt so real. This, isn't, this is closer to Deep Impact than it is to Armageddon, but the fact that it's told through a family's eyes and everything about it felt realistic uh, and wasn't a film about apocalypse porn. It was a film about uh, about characters who care about each other and 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 that ultimately you care about as well. I, th- I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Close in a way to Spielberg's War of the Worlds by focusing on on, on one set of characters rather than the event uh, nationwide. Um, absolutely, absolutely loved it. I thought it was it was a film where you cared about the people that you watched and say that about a general butler film having watched geostorm everything about this um the the moment that the uh the wife loses uh the child and what a fantastic performance by um somebody used to be in um firefly marina beckeran when she loses a child um a couple of spoilers so uh, if you've not watched it hang on i'm not going to give anything away I, I just thought it was it was an absolutely tense, and I do love a good disaster movie, and this is one of those things, which is a rarity these days, which is a good disaster movie because we cared about the characters. You can see CGI explosions all over the place now. Thank you, Roland Emmerich. But this is one of those that it's a it's the best thing that I think Butler's done in years. But it's about the vulnerability of people, and you can't help but put yourself in any of those characters. Even the characters who do things which are morally wrong, they did them for a reason that felt felt right to them, and I, I thought it was fantastic. Absolutely loved it. And again, a film that stayed with me for a good few days afterwards. Absolutely compelling. Glad to hear it. You're basically echoing everything that I'd said last week, where it was all about the characters, it's all about the internal drama, and not about the big explosions. Marvellous film. I've got a couple of other films that dropped over this past week. One which is definitely worth checking out is The Map of Tiny Perfect Things. Great title. Oh, it's a marvellous title. I have to keep reading it because I'll forget it otherwise. I've said it in so many different ways. Um, A teenage Mark, played by Kyle Allen, 
is trapped happily in a Groundhog Day-style time loop. And then one day he encounters Margaret, who's also stuck in the time loop. And she's played by rising star Catherine Newton, who you'll have recognised from films such as Freaky, Detective Pikachu, Blockers, and is cast as Cassie Lang in the next Ant-Man film. She's really on the trajectory at the moment. But she's also stuck in the time loop. And they set about looking for the perfect moments throughout that day in that town, marking them. And Mark starts to build a map of all the little key moments, all the little things that you might miss if you don't stop and look around for a while, with the possibility of hopefully finding a way to get out of the time loop. However, Margaret, for some reason, doesn't necessarily want to leave the time loop. And that forms part of the core emotional story as the two bond and then separate and then try to reconcile as it goes along. Let's get to the elephants in the room. Yes, this is Groundhog Day. The film acknowledges it pretty early on by actually referencing, wasn't this a film? Yes, it was Groundhog Day. But it's like Groundhog Day if you came in towards the last third of the film when Bill Murray's trying to set things up right. Because Mark has been stuck in this loop so long that he now he now instinctively knows everything. And it has a great opening sequence with him starting his day and walking down the street and interacting with things that he already knew was going to happen without even thinking about interacting with them. He'll reach out and grab at something that's about to drop and pop it back on something. He'll, it's a marvellous sequence to watch through. And there's a few moments like that throughout the film as the pair have done this so often that they know it inside out. And it's a charming film. It's a film that becomes an exploration of loneliness in a world that's populated. It's a film that tells you to look up from your screen every now and then and look at the world around you because these are the things you're missing. It's got so many different messages in there. But most of all, it's just a charming rom-com at the same time. And I thoroughly recommend it. It's an easy film to watch. I watched it. And then a few days later, my wife popped it on to watch while I was in the room. And I was hooked again. And I watched it again. Give it a check. It's on Amazon at the moment. It's a pleasant entry into the time loop concept. Well worth checking out. And the other film is How to Lame Your Dragon. I mean, Dragon Rider. Now, this is based on a book by Cornelia Funk, which came out before the books that inspired How to Train Your Dragon. But this film makes the mistake of choosing to acknowledge How to Train Your Dragon and riff on it as a result. It has a lead character in it that's inspired by an in-movie riff on How to Train Your Dragon called How to Tame Your Dragon. And thus, it sabotages its own concept in the process of deli- by deliberately drawing comparison with How to Train Your Dragon. This is a cheap animation. This is one of those German animations that has been dubbed over for a UK audience with a, a decent cast. Thomas Brody, Sangster, Felicity Jones, Freddie Highmore, Patrick Stewart, all names that you recognise, all people who should be in better films than this. And the How to Train Your Dragon films and most other animations these days are great family films because they design them for the family. They design them so that kids will lap them up, but adults will also embrace like the story aesthetics in there and the character developments that go on. This is targeting a six-year-old audience and no one else. Right. And this, the only pleasure that a parent could get is by sitting their kid down to watch it and then leaving the room and having one and a half hours of peace and quiet. <laughs> That's the only joy that a parent can get from it. It is not good. It's also laboriously inserts references to technology like mobile phones and tablets and things like that, to be hip and cool, but is dated as, as, as a result, such as when the when one of the characters says, Skype me, and you're just like, Skype? Who uses Skype these days? <laughs> yeah, it's so out of date, not worth checking out at all. If your kid is under the age of 10, they might like it. You are not going to. It's another, and I'm saying this a lot, it's another Sky original that is just not worth seeing. No. 
Okay, so moving on from that, let's talk about something that I know you're waiting to hear our thoughts on. And that was, well, still is, this week's episode of WandaVision. Episode 6, all new Halloween spooktacular. Yet the weirdness in this episode gets ramped up as the series is now kind of drifted into the 90s, or maybe early 2000s, with a kind of a Malcolm in the middle sort of approach, uh, which makes me believe that next week's will be uh, Modern Family. The Office. I guess if that kind of brings <laughs> it up to date. Or The Office, yeah. The uh, sort of uh, fake doc fly on the kind wall. of uh, yeah. fly on the wall kind of um, kind of take. So this week, again, we uh, are in the town of Westview. There was more strangeness happening. Uh, the introduction of uh, Pietro, Wanda's dead brother, now played by Evan Peters, who uh, played uh, Pietro in the X-Men films. Yeah, it suddenly all got complicated. And uh, we now have a bigger kind of look of what's happening within the town, more mysteries. Uh, the children have all grown up and now started to develop their own special powers. Andy, what did you make of uh, uh, of this week's WandaVision? Uh, it, this, is, this was a setup episode. There's some great moments in there, but a lot of it was setting up for what the final stretch is going to do over the next few episodes. And it had some marvelous yeah, sequences. Uh, there was some eye-opening moments such as towards the edge of the barrier it appears that people are stuck in repetitive patterns or frozen on the spot because Wanda's powers or whatever is controlling them is only capable of doing so much and these people are you know there's there's moments of people who you can see are distressed because they can't do anything they're frozen in space and it, it kind of like it's chilling and then you got... Yeah, there was the one bit, wasn't there? The uh, woman who was putting out her decorations. Yeah. And there was a singular tear on her. That was, yeah, that that, and it's, that hit hard. It's Vision exploring this part of the community and realising something's wrong. And then he gets to the barrier and steps through it. And that whole moment then was harrowing. That was true, genuine horror going on with him trying to get further and further away from the barrier as he starts dissolving and getting ripped apart and shredded. And all the while, Vision was only concerned with the people who were suffering inside. He just wanted them to get help. And that, for me, was the key moment in this episode because that told you everything that you need to know about Vision as a character. This is the reason why Vision could lift Thor's hammer because he only thinks about the safety and security and comfort of others. He's not a selfish character. He's the most honourable and pure. And that sequence just, it, it ripped me to shreds. I've got to say that I thought Bethany, in those scenes where he's becoming more aware that nothing's right in this sort of idyllic suburb, uh, were, were the strongest of, of the episode, even though there were some, some fantastically poignant scenes between uh, Wanda and Pietro. And, and and again, just to point out how fantastic Elizabeth Olsen is, she gets to play a, the broken Wanda absolutely superbly. And then she has to, she, she plays the, the kind of like the idyllic perfect mom as well. And um, they both actors have been, been stunning all, all series. And, it, and you kind of, you kind of ping pong between who's your favorite character within them because they are, they're now doing two very, very different things. I thought the stuff outside of, uh, of, of the town was a bit more, um, uh, wasn't quite as compelling as it had been. We know that uh, Sword's boss is up to something, but we're not quite sure what. Yeah. 
but I think once you this week, because uh, I, I think the previous week was such a strong episode where we finally saw outside of, uh, of, of, of the compound and what was going on. This one felt a, a little bit more of, you said, a bit more of a holding position, but it, it really kind of influenced what's going on. And to say that we've now got allegedly three episodes left, whatever the big bad is going to be, is, we need to kind of find out. I mean, there are thousands of theories running around the internet. Is it Mephisto? Is it Nightmare that would lead into Doctor Strange? Is Evan Peters Mephisto? Is he Nightmare? Um, really, really interesting. But of course, they're so tight-lipped that we're not going to know. And I and I totally agree. The the final moments, that build up to to the action-packed climax, and what that means, and it's going to set up for for the rest of the series is uh, is was really, really um, intriguing. And it was a it was a good cliffhanger. I thought it was kind of cool that all the the swords. Uh, agents were turned into a circus and, and clowns, that which was, was was kind of interesting. It was interesting to see what's going to happen to Darcy <laughs> as part of that. And uh, I'm still kind of convinced that that while Wanda is potentially manipulating everything, I think she's being manipulated herself. But it sort of threw off, um, it's through the scent of uh, Agatha this week as, as she's caught up with it, as well as she approached that kind of strange grey area that's the edge of town. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure if that's more because she's gotten further away from Wanda's own magic hex powers that if she is Agatha Harkness that maybe her powers are sapped as she gets closer to the edge who knows yeah who and knows right well and now normal but yeah I've heard this rumor I don't know if you've heard this because apparently the series was supposed to go up to nine I've heard a couple of things one there's going to be a, a special uh 10th episode a secret 10th episode which I don't know about but also uh, that the three remaining episodes are hour-longs as opposed to the 35 minutes that we've been having so far. Yeah, I read something uh, from Feige that suggested as much. Now, bear in mind, it's got like seven minutes of end credits every episode. It's still only 50 minutes, but more or less, per episode. Yeah. So it's about a normal TV show now. So yeah. we'll find out this Friday. Also on streaming over this next week, there will be, um, which have caught my attention, on Now TV Stroke Sky, there's Two Olivia, which is set in 1962 and focuses on Roald Dahl and his Hollywood actress wife, who've retreated to the English countryside to bring up their expanding young family. But tragically, their lives are turned upside down by the devastating death of their daughter, Olivia. And um, you've got Hugh Bonneville playing Dahl in this and Keely Hawes as his wife. Interesting film, captures me attention just for the historical aspect of seeing a literary giant being represented on the screen. Over on Amazon, I Curve A Lot, which has Rosamund Pike, Peter Dinklage, Eliza Gonzalez and Diane West in a dark comedy from the director of The Disappearance of Alan's Creed, following a professional court-appointed guardian for dozens of elderly wards whose assets she seizes and through dubious and legally legal means. But when her latest mark turns out to have an equally shady secret of their own and connections to a volatile gangster, it kind of ups the game. And most of all, this next week, Disney Plus Muppet Show. Yes, I've heard that's uh, that's making its resurgence for a, for a generation who've uh, who just love sock puppets. Let's be uh, honest. <laughs> oh, I, I can't wait to watch all those all episodes of the Muppet Show. And this will lead us up to next week when all the Fox content drops on there, which we'll talk about in more detail next week. And that's it for this week's show. But before we go, we do this every week. Andy, what have you watched, uh, listened to, played? What has been your neat thing? So I have finished watching 
all 10 episodes of Ted Lasso. And oh my, that show is such a joy. It comes from the mind of Bill Lawrence, who gave us Scrubs and Spin City, and Jason Sudeikis from Saturday Night Live, and has also been in films such as Horrible Bosses. And it's an absolute gem of a show. Sudeikis plays Ted Lasso, an American football coach recruited to coach British football team, AFC Richmond, a struggling British Premier League team. The current owner of the club, Rebecca, played by Hannah Waddingham, hires him because she secretly wants to destroy the club from within as revenge against her ex-husband. Ted's appointment is met with hostility from the press, the public and the team, and he appears clearly out of his league. However, his infectious, charming personality makes him hard for anyone to really hate, and the series swiftly becomes not just a great sitcom, but also a heartwarming example of sports drama. Within the first episode, I was like, there's something with this that I'm really liking. By the end of the second episode, I was like, I'm in. I'm completely in. It's got beautiful moments of hilarity. It's got a great cast of characters. The the characters all grow in that way that Bill Lawrence has been so great at doing. I mean, you saw it in Scrubs, how he grew every character, how he developed them over a season. And he's done it in this perfectly. Even characters that at the start you go, oh, don't like that character. I hate them. Within three more episodes, you start rethinking your stance on those characters. Absolute brilliant. Ten episodes of absolute genius. Thoroughly recommended. It's on Apple TV+. Plus. Get it watched if you've got a subscription to Apple TV+. Plus. If you've not, get a subscription to Apple TV+, Plus and get this watched. I've heard so many good things about it that it's... Uh, I was just kind of waiting for somebody I knew to, to have seen it, to, to make that final recommendation. The only thing that put me off is I'm not a football fan. It, will that matter? No, I'm not. I mean, I'm not a big fan of football. My wife certainly isn't a fan of football, but this was one of those shows that we both sat and watched and enjoyed together. We both loved it because you don't have to know about football. In fact, it probably helps that you don't know about football because Ted doesn't. Okay, (laughs) that makes sense. I'll give that a shot. I've been waiting to give it a shot, to be perfectly honest. It's been on it's been on the list for some time. Um, mine is is an odd one this week. My neat thing is my doctor. You're thinking, why? Well, I uh, I had to see a doctor. Uh, I've received a, uh, I received an injury in my arm, which is uh, over the last uh, last month or so has been getting worse and worse and worse. And um, it's not always it's not always easy to to. It should always, let me rephrase that, it should always be easy to say good things about the NHS, but sometimes the NHS isn't quite as we want it to be. But on this particular occasion, this is why we love our NHS. I was given an appointment, got to see my, my doctor on the day, who was absolutely uh, fantastic, who, who in fact said, don't call me doctor, this is my first name, this is who I am. Uh, and she was absolutely <laughs> charming, and um, she understood my injury, um, she recommended that I needed surgery and she would do everything in her power to make sure that I got that surgery. And it was just that perfect example of, of, of what the NHS is there for and, and, and how under pressure they are with this, this terrible situation that we're in. And, and the, you know, people bemoan it all the time and, and, and pull it down. I've seen countries where you have to pay. I've seen countries where it costs a fortune. To, to get surgery and if if you don't have the right medical insurance then you don't get to get those operations you don't get to get that that level of uh, of care and for everybody who bemoans it just remember if we didn't have it and you had to pay for it uh something as simple as a, a 20 minute consultancy would cost you thousands they don't always get it right but when we need them you know what they're always there so my neat thing is 
the NHS generally, I would say, but, but in fact, my doctor. Uh, and that's it for this week. Thank you so much uh, for listening. It's always a, a joy to bring you this show. We'll be back all being well next week, uh, unless anything happens. Anything planned for the next week, or is it just a case of, of making it through the week? It's the Muppet Show. <laughs> five, five seasons of the Muppet Show landing tomorrow. I'm going to be watching all of them. <laughs> you know it's going, to, uh, it's, it's going to rock your brain. You do know that. <laughs> right, we'll see you next week. But in the meantime, it doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop, ever, until you're dead. See ya.